0: You take your copies of the scripture with me this morning and turn to the book of Exodus chapter 15. In a moment we'll read verses 1 through 21 of Exodus 15. What a gift we've been given in Christ church. I read this week an analogy If someone were to come to me and to say, "I, I really want to be your friend, I want to have a relationship with you, but I don't want to spend any time with your wife, she's ugly, she's annoying, she gets on my nerves, I don't really want to have anything to do with her, but I want to have a relationship with you, my relationship with that person would not go very far. And we can never say the same thing to Christ. We can never say, Jesus, I want to have a relationship with you, but I don't want your bride. She's ugly, she's annoying, she gets on my nerves. I don't really want to spend any time with her, but Jesus, I want you. When we love Christ, we love what Christ loves. He loves His church, and so we love His church, and so we see it as a gift that He's given to us, precious, something to be treasured, and cherished, so I hope that's how you view the church, as a gift to us, and a great gift we, we love because Christ loves His church. Would you stand with me this morning as we read Exodus 15, verses 1 through 21? Again, the song of Moses and the Israelites as they stand on the shore of the Red Sea. Follow along while I read. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and His rider He has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, and I will exalt Him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, You overthrow your adversaries, you send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the floods stood up in a heap, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them, I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you. They are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And so we ask for your word to speak to us, O Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. What a beautiful place we are in at Exodus 15 as we again gather with all of the Israelites there around the Red Sea, and we hear this song sung by Moses and the Israelites, a song that's sung to Yahweh. Who has just led them through the Red Sea on dry ground. Now they're lifting up their voices in praise to their God. They are worshiping Him. They are exalting Him. They are giving Him the glory for what He has done. We see that Christians, as the people of God, that this is nothing new for us. We have been singing for thousands of years. It is good that we sing. It is right that we sing. We as God's people know we must sing. Christians sing. It's what we do. There is no such thing as a non-singing Christian. You will not and should not find such a person. And we know the God who causes our hearts to sing... And that's made evident through the singing of our lips and our mouths. We sing for the Lord. We sing to the Lord in order to worship Him. We sing for one another so as to demonstrate the Word of Christ that is dwelling in us richly so that we are able to teach and admonish one another through song. We sing so that other believers are encouraged in their faith, so that they hear other believers singing the same truths that they themselves believe. We we sing to show that we are of one voice and one heart and one mind as one body of Christ, with Him as our head. Singing in unity is designed to maintain unity as Christ's church, And so with all of this, we already know, we ask one other question, what do we sing about? What is the content of our song? We have already seen that those who are around the sea were basing their song on who the Lord is and what the Lord has done. To state it another way, they go back and forth between the person of God and the work of God. Our songs would do well to mimic these themes. And notice where the focus of this song is placed. It is foundationally a song that is built upon God. It's not about the Israelites. It's not about Moses. Yes, there are references to themselves, but they are not the main focus. The focus is Yahweh. Let our worship and our songs cause us to focus on Him and on His greatness. there's one more aspect of the song I want to draw our attention to as our songs are to be songs that are captivated by the glory of God. This is a song praising Yahweh for what He has done and what He will do. So let's think about that for a moment. How great is the past The Lord has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider He has thrown into the sea. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord has put on display His great power and His might. The Lord has shown His greatness and His majesty in shattering and overthrowing His enemies. To God be the glory, great things He has done. And so we sing too about what the Lord has done. We sing about Jesus Christ coming into the world as the Son of God. We sing about what Christ has accomplished through His death and through His resurrection. We sing about the redeeming love and redeeming work of our Lord. All of this has happened in the past. It is the work in the past that has saved us and makes us who we are today. But we are not only singing about the past, what God has done, we are also singing about the future. God's work and God's plan have not reached their final consummation yet. There is still more to come. Let's take a moment to think about that for a moment. It's one thing to think to sing about the past. It's happened. We know it happened. We know how it happened. We know what resulted from those events. We stand on solid footing when we sing about the past. What does it take, on the other hand, to sing about the future? And to sing about the future with certainty, with confidence, and with hope. Who does that? Who sings about the future and says, I know what's going to happen, and I am sure that it is going to happen, and I'm so sure I'm going to sing about it. But that is what we as Christians do. We sing about the future. We sing about what will happen, and we sing about it with confidence, with hope, with a sense of urgency, and always accompanied with great faith. It takes faith to sing about the future this way. It takes faith to sing about how it is all going to end. It takes faith to say that this is what the Lord will do, and we know that He will do it, and we are convinced that He will do it, and we praise Him now in the present for something He hasn't even done yet. But let us at the same time realize we don't sing about the past, the present, or the future in nice, neat little boxes so as to separate them from one another. How is it that we can sing about the future? We can sing about it because we know the past. We know how God has kept all of His promises. Not one of them has failed. We know His faithfulness to us day to day and with each passing moment. We know His sustaining and strengthening power All of these inform our singing of the future. It is the work of God in the past and the work of God now that allows us to sing of God's work in the future. And all of what God has done, is doing, and will do is accomplished because of who He is. And He is the one who never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And now we come to the point in the song where Moses leads the people to sing about the future. We are reminded again that the song song that's sung by the sea is still our song for today. They sang it, we still sing it because it is absolutely relevant to our lives. In your bulletin is an outline. We've gone through that the first three points already this morning. Lord willing, we will... Hit point four and five. We've already seen that we sing to the Lord who is imminent. That is, He is near and close. He participates in His creation. We hear this as they sing The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him. We need a God who is near, a God who is close, a God who helps us in our weaknesses. We also saw that we sing praise the Lord who has defeated His enemies to deliver His people. We saw how the Lord shatters the enemy, how the greatness of His majesty overthrew His adversaries, how He sent out His fury and it consumed them like stubble. Who were the enemies of God? They were nothing. The Lord is a warrior and He conquered His enemies. Their power had no power over him. We also sing and praise the Lord who is transcendent. This is verses 11 and 12. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? What's the answer? No one. The God, our God is far above his creation. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways and how important it is that we need a God who is both imminent and who is also at the same time transcendent. That we need a God who is close to us and near to us ministering to our hearts and to our lives yet when he is doing that he is the transcendent God who knows exactly what we need who cares for us like no one else can care for us, and helps us navigate through this life with His transcendence. As we see Him as the Holy One and the One who does glorious deeds and wonders. And so then this morning, number four, we sing praise to the Lord who directs His people so they will dwell with Him. We sing praise to the Lord who directs His people so they will dwell with Him. It's important for us to be able to answer big questions. Our children need to hear us answer those big questions. They have the big questions. And brother and sister, the children need to hear us give good answers to those big questions. We can't ignore them. We can't put them off. We must answer them with clarity, with simplicity, with certainty, and always based upon God's truth. And as we get to this point in our song, verses 13 through 18, there's a big question that is underlying all of what is being sung about the big question is this what is the goal of creation where are we going what is the ultimate end that we are looking forward to will creation just go on forever and ever like it is right now how would you answer that how would you tell a child about that The goal of creation is the new creation, or what the Bible describes as the new heaven and a new earth where God will dwell again with man and where man will worship Him forever and ever. That's the goal. That's where it's all going. It's a fairly short answer to a big question, but the whole Bible is set on a trajectory to get this answer at the end. God dwelt with man in the beginning. God will again dwell with man at the end. And in the middle, we have the fall where mankind has sinned against God and is now separated from God because of his sin. And then we have redemption, how it's all going to be made right so that man can again dwell with God. And in our verses here now, we just read in verse 11, Who is like you, majestic in holiness? And that proclamation of who God is should create tension in our hearts. Because when I say that we will again dwell with God in glory, how is that going to happen? Because we know that God is a holy God and we are sinful man. And those two cannot go together. How is it that the holy God will again dwell with sinful man? What does it mean for us as sinful mankind? when we look at the transcendent God who is majestic in holiness, means that left in our sin, God is unapproachable. Do you know what happens to sinful man when he attempts to approach the holy God? He dies. That's a big problem because when we say that God will dwell Again, with man, we're not saying that God is going to dwell with a bunch of corpses. He will dwell with his people in the land of the living. So here in these verses, we have attention tension where the unapproachable God, majestic in holiness, is now approachable. God is directing his people, guiding them by his strength to his holy abode, to his holy dwelling place. He is bringing them to the place where he will dwell among them and with them. And God is promising to plant his people on his mountain where he lives. And look at how the Lord does this. You see that in verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed the Lord leads his people according to his steadfast love this is his covenantal loyal love that he has for his people it's a love that he does not give just to anybody this is the love that he gives to those with whom he has a relationship and we know this relationship exists between God and his people and we know that it is a close and intimate relationship because the Lord says in Exodus 4.22, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. So because of this relationship, the Lord has with this people, He has covenantal love for them, steadfast love, a love that never gives up on them, a a love that never wanes on them, a love that never grows cold towards them. so we ask ourselves, how does the Lord lead His people? He leads them in His love. Why does the Lord lead them? Because He loves them. What encouragement is there for us, dear brother and sister? All of the Lord's actions which He has done for His people so that we would be surrounded, folded in, and enveloped in his love. What great, mighty, and immeasurable kind of love is this? A love so devoted, so unstoppable, it could only be labeled as infinite love. Why does God lavish his steadfast love upon his people? Have they earned it? Do they deserve it? No. The Lord's steadfast love is based upon His grace. So this is how we need the Lord even to lead us today. We need Him to lead us in His steadfast love. The people that He knows because He has redeemed them. This means the Lord has purchased His people with a price so that He might free them from their slavery. He already promised to redeem them with an outstretched arm in Exodus 6.6, 6, and now we see here that He's kept His promise. It sets our feet as God's people on solid ground, knowing God's consistent faithfulness. The Lord redeemed His people from the land of Egypt, but that act of redemption is meant to point forward to a better redemption, a final redemption, a full redemption. While Israel's redemption came through the substitute and sacrifice of a lamb whose blood was applied to the doorpost and the lintel of the Israelite houses so the Lord would pass over them to preserve their lives, there is a better redemption that's come through a better lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so through this better lamb comes a better blood, the blood that was shed by Jesus Christ on the cross, where now we are told in Ephesians 1, in Him we have redemption through what? His blood. The forgiveness of our trespassing according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us. God is not stingy with His grace. God lavishes His grace upon us out of the riches, out of the abundance of His grace. It is a better redemption because it is not a price that's paid to redeem us from any physical nation or any physical oppressor. It is a redemption that frees us from our enslavement to sin. This is the best redemption because it is we who are then redeemed so that we are able to approach the one who is unapproachable. We are those who are the redeemed who will one day dwell with God again in perfect, Harmony. Verse 13 should be a verse that we see over and over again in the Bible. How has the Lord led his people? He's led them in his steadfast love, the people whom he has redeemed. And he's guided them by his strength, and he is guiding them by his strength to his holy abode. Where is God bringing his people? God is bringing his people to himself, To the place where he is, to his holy abode. God says, I love you so much that I know the place that you need to be is with me. And look at what happened when the Lord led his redeemed people. He cleared a path before them so they could get to him. Because there were all of these enemies that stood in the way. God, do you know where we're going to go? We're going to this land. We're going to this promised land. And on the way there, we're going to face enemies. And when we get there, we're going to face enemies. What are we going to do, God? And God says, I will lead you by my steadfast love to my mountain, to my holy abode. And you let me take care of the enemies. You see the... Egyptians washing up on the seashore. The enemies that are to come don't stand a chance. All these pagan nations that were threatening God's people, in the end, they wouldn't be able to stand. We see that here, don't we? Verses 14. 15, 16. The people have heard. They trembled. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Chiefs of Edom are dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Why? Why? What is it that causes these enemies of God to quake in their boots? Because of the greatness of your arm. God, you've shown your arm to be great and mighty and powerful. And all of these enemies of God aren't able to deny your greatness and how powerful you are. They can't get over it, they can't dismiss it, they can't explain it away. They are trembling, they are shaking. They are dismayed. Their hearts have melted away. In fact, do you remember that Joshua sends out some spies into Jericho when they come into the land, the promised land? And do you remember these spies are received by a woman named Rahab? And this is what she says to those men in Joshua 2, 9 and 10 and 11. She says, "I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man." because of you for the Lord your God he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath the Lord had prepared a way even the inhabitants of Jericho their hearts melted because of the greatness of God It was indisputable greatness, and it made all of the enemies paralyzed with fear. They were as still as a stone. Dear brother and sister, who are we afraid of that could possibly get in the way of us dwelling with God? What enemy is going to stop us from getting to God. No one is powerful enough. No one is numerous enough. No one is threatening enough to keep us separated from our God and from our Savior. The enemies of the Lord may look powerful, they may appear to be too numerous it may seem as if there is no way that we can get past them but praise God we do not rely upon our power or our strength or on our greatness to overcome our enemies praise God for his excellent greatness and he is so great that all of his enemies will melt away before them before him these are the people that Yahweh has purchased with a great price They are precious in His sight. And so they are looking forward to what then God will do. They're on their way to the promised land. And they're singing this song then in verse 17. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your holy abode. That's what the people are looking forward to. It's the promise that was made to Abraham in Genesis 17 that they would have a land for an everlasting possession. It's the same promise that's repeated in 2 Samuel 7.10 when the Lord makes this covenant with David and says and I will appoint uh, appoint a place for you my people Israel and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Did you hear that promise with David? It's the same thing that They sing about here. You will bring them in and what? You will plant them on your mountain. Even Amos, the end of Amos, chapter 9, verse 15, the Lord says, I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. This is the hope that God is going to plant his people on his mountain. What mountain are we talking about? We're talking about Mount Zion. We're talking about the Mount there in Jerusalem, the city of God, where the temple one day was to be built, where people were to stream to go to worship God and offer sacrifices to the Lord and draw near to him. This is the holy city. And dear brother or sister, this mount, Mount Zion, and this holy city, Jerusalem, is what we look forward to today, except now it is a better mount. It is the new Jerusalem. It's the holy city, the one that Jeff read about for us in Revelation that comes down out of the heavens from God. This new heaven and this new earth, like a bride that is adorned for her husband, where the people of God will worship our God forever and ever and ever. Why was this place so important for these people? Because the land was the place of God's divine presence. To be in the land was to be where the Lord was. It was to be in His presence. The land was a sanctuary because it is where the Lord God dwelt with His people. To be in the presence of the Lord is to be close to Him, to be near to Him, to see and behold His greatness and His glory, to stand in awe of Him with all adoration and worship. This is what the people longed for. It's what they desired and yet their sin kept them from full access. God was only approachable to a certain point. Only only the great high priest could go into the holy of holies of the temple, and that but once a year. The people were reminded that they did not yet have full access. And so we might hear them cry out, How long, O Lord, will will we be kept from your full presence? How long, O Lord, will this barrier of our sin remain? How long will we remain unclean by the stain of our iniquities? How long, O Lord? As we cry out, how long? We remember that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And what did the Son of God, Jesus Christ, do? When He hung upon the cross, bearing our sin and our shame, He cried out, It is finished. And He breathed His last. And then what happened? The curtain in the temple, the curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, that curtain that separated the people from God's full glory, that, temp- that curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. Jesus' death gives us access to the holy God. He cleanses us from all sins so that now we are able to do what Hebrews 10 says. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us Through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And this dwelling with God, this access to the divine presence and approachability we look forward to and we sing about with certainty in the future when we will finally dwell with our God in the new creation. Revelation 21, 3 again. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. Do you desire to dwell with the Lord in complete harmony? This is why the Israelites are worshiping. This is why our worship should be the same because we are all longing for and desiring that day when we will be in the Lord's divine presence finally and fully once for all. The problem is many want to the blessing of God's divine presence, but they don't want God. Let us never separate those two. If you want the divine blessing that comes from being in the very presence of God, then you want God. And either the Lord directs you to dwell with Him in the new creation, in a new heaven, a new earth, or you know eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. There's only two paths. do you desire to be in the presence of the Lord? To be honest, none of us knows exactly what that will be like. (laughs) But we know, I think we can say with certainty, that it will be the best experience that we've ever had. This brings us to the last line there of that verse. 18, the last line of the song, verse 18, the Lord will reign forever and ever. What is it that these people are singing about? They're singing about the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? Very simply put, the kingdom of God is God's people in God's place Under God's rule. God's people in God's place underneath God's rule. And this is what they are longing for. This is what they're wanting. This is what they're singing about. The Lord will reign forever and ever. They are saying at the top of their lungs Yahweh is king. Pharaoh is not king, no one else is king, no other king will do Yahweh, and Yahweh alone is king, and no one can dethrone him, no one can overtake him, no one can tame him. He will dwell with his redeemed people whom he has forgiven of their sin and declared righteous in his sight because he has imputed Christ's righteousness to them on their account. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Is that the theme of our song? Is that why we sing? And it brings us to point five. We sing praise to the Lord forever. We sing praise to the Lord forever. This is the result. And this is now... I believe what the end of this section of text is telling us as we see Miriam come out. Miriam, she's described as the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, takes a tambourine in her hand. All the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing, and Miriam sang to them. And what did she sing? Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Do you notice that that refrain was also the very first line of the song. So why does the song start that way? And why does this become the line that Miriam and all the other women sing? I think because this is the refrain. This is the chorus that's repeated over and over and over again. The chorus that we need to hear. The Lord has triumphed gloriously And so this is why we must still sing this song and why we will continue to sing this song on into eternity. Turn with me for a moment to the book of Revelation chapter 15. keep in our mind what we have just been reading about with the Israelites around the Red Sea singing a song. Revelation 15, starting in verse 2. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image And the number of its names standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. What's the scene? A sea. The enemy has been conquered. Here are the people standing beside the sea. And what do they do? Verse 3 and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Here it is, they're singing the song again, aren't they? The song of Moses. And now it's not just the song of Moses. Know what it is. It's the song of Moses and who else? The song of the Lamb. Who is the Lamb? This is the Lamb who is standing, even though it's been slain. This is the song of Moses and the song of Jesus Christ, the Lamb. And what are they singing? Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. The same themes are being sung in the book of Revelation as were sung in Exodus 15. God's excellent greatness, His amazing deeds, all that He's done. Why? So that everyone would come to worship Him. So that all of the nations would flood to His throne and worship Him. The book of Revelation is a worship war. Who are you going to worship? Are you going to worship the beast and His image, or are you going to worship God and the Lamb? That is the worship war. That is the war that we are in. It's not a war over if we sing hymns or if we sing contemporary songs. It's not a war over if we have lights or don't have lights. It's a war over are we going to worship God and the Lamb or are we not? And I think Dear brother and sister, this gets very dangerous because sometimes this war is very subtle. Because the worship war does not come to us and say, Worship the beast. The worship war comes to us and say, "Eh, you don't need to worship today, do you? You don't need to spend time with God's people, do you? Is it really that important? I mean, aren't there other things that you could be doing? Are there are other ways you could spend your time. Don't you have more important things to do than worship God?" What does it take for us to say, there's nothing that's going to stop me? (laughs) There's nothing that's going to prohibit me from worshiping God. There's nothing that's going to get in my way of getting together with God's people and singing this song together. I have to do it. I must do it. Nothing is going to get in my way because my greatest desire is to see what Revelation 11 verse 5 says, or verse 15, excuse me, Revelation 11 verse 15 Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And what? And he shall reign forever and ever. Our desire is to see the kingdom of this world become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and we will stop at nothing until we see that happen. All of the enemy's hearts will melt in our way. And we need to believe that this will happen because our lives are the living testimony that this is happening. When the Lord saves the addicted and the broken. When the Lord saves the one who's prostituted themselves, live for themselves. When the Lord saves the one who's lost all health. when the Lord gets into people's lives and draws them to himself he's victorious in the worship war and we say there's nothing that's gonna stop me the kingdom of this world is becoming the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and we see it in the eyes of one another as we gather it's there It's in your heart That I see no longer the kingdom of this world, but I see the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Let us not be blind to that. Let us not forget that. And where is that all leading us to dwell with God again in glory? Where there's no more sin, there's no more suffering, there's no more death. Thank you for your word, Father. I pray that we would see more and more the kingdom of this world become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ until that day of final consummation when Christ returns. And then we will know fully what we've only known in part. That day when we will see and behold our Savior face to face. When we will finally be fully like Him because we will see Him as He is. And Father, forgive us for the times when we've minimized worship. When we've minimized what You have designed us and created us for. And Father, may we see that the worship of the living God is why we exist in our own lives, but it's also why we exist for this world. We want more people to come to worship the living God. We want more people to be saved. We want more people to be drawn to the family. We want more people to be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. To know the riches of your grace lavished upon them as we know that grace lavished upon us. That's the whole goal of missions is so that the world would worship. We want more people to come to your throne. We want more people to see the Lamb who was slain. Father, we pray that this would be our great desire as we're on the road to that heavenly city, that new Jerusalem, that place where there is no need for sun or moon or stars because You are the light. That place where there is no need for a temple because You are there and the Lamb is there. Lord, as we travel on this road, may our eyes look forward to that city and may our hearts sing about that city, and may we have confidence and hope in that day when we will be with you in glory. I pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.